Gospel of John. So I'd like to invite you um, to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. If you're turning, pass the outline out. So I was listening to uh, all those prayer requests. Um, I was reminded that we have many, uh, many burdens, all of us. Um, many things that um, we're going through. Many probably weren't even shared this morning. And um, I think it goes very well with, with our lesson. Um, really, as I was preparing this, this is a, a, a sweet passage, probably one of my favorites in John, John 10. And, um, so I was studying, and I thought to myself, I, I really have two main goals um, through this lesson for you this morning. And it's that you would know the heart of Christ, and that you would know the mission of Christ. How does that relate to all the burdens and all the cares that, that we bring with us? My desire is that as we work through the passage, you'll come away with a deeper awareness of the heart of Christ. For you, believer, his love for you, believer, even in the midst of trials and suffering and hardship, that you come away with a more accurate understanding of his heart towards you, that it would bring you into sweeter fellowship and communion with God, and that it would spill out, overflow into a life of sacrificial love to others. My other desire is that you would know the mission of Christ, the certainty of his mission, the unstoppability of his mission, a mission that aims at the whole world, all the nations. My desire is that you would see that the ultimate goal of God's work in salvation history is unto the glory of Christ, we will see this morning. My desire is that you would see your life with all of your trials, sufferings, um, joys, happinesses, all these things as a part of this grand story that God is working out in salvation history. I want you to see that the ultimate aim of your salvation is not simply the forgiveness of your sins or the gift of heaven, as glorious as those things are, but it is the glory of Christ who has come to redeem a specific people for the Father, which will redound to his glory forever and ever, and you are a part of that story. I want to read a verse that you are very familiar with here. Revelation 5, 9-10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is what Christ is about. That's what he's come for. And we're going to see that uh, in our passage this morning. <clears throat> so those are two goals. I want you to know the heart of Christ. And I want you to know the mission of Christ. So this morning we're going to be in John chapter
chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And I've entitled this section, Two Portraits of the Good Shepherd, which reveal the heart and mission of Christ. Two portraits of the Good Shepherd. The first portrait is found in verses 11 through 13. Is the portrait of the good shepherd contrasted with hirelings? Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus here now gives his fourth I am statement of the Gospel of John. We saw last week Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the entrance point into the messianic fold. Now he says, I am the good shepherd. Last week he came and presented himself as the true shepherd of, of Israel. Um, do you remember what we said uh, shepherd imagery always has to do with in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament? It's always connected with what? With kingship. So Jesus comes, verses 1 through 10, presents himself as the true shepherd, the true king of Israel. But this morning now he comes and presents himself as the good shepherd, the good king. Now we use that word good in a number of ways, don't we? We can say the pizza was good, uh, that song was good. Uh, we say that person was good and nice to me. But I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. Um, I don't think he's merely saying that he's nice or that he is just not bad. I also don't think Jesus wants us to get in mind a picture of an effeminate shepherd cuddling with cozy little lambs, as you often see in the, in the pictures. What does it mean that he's a, a good shepherd? Um, I think the good shepherd means something like he is the excellent shepherd. He is the noble shepherd. Even he is the ideal shepherd. Notice he does not say, I am a good shepherd. What does he say? I am the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd par excellence. He is the, the most excellent shepherd king of Israel. But what qualifies him to be such a shepherd? He tells us in verse 11, it is the self-sacrifice of the good shepherd. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. This phrase, I lay down my life, is going to reoccur three times in our passage this morning. But what I want to emphasize here is the substitutionary element in this phrase, I lay down my life for the sheep. That preposition for, in Greek it's huper. In John it always has a sacrificial element to it. It emphasizes the substitutionary nature. Jesus, as the good shepherd, voluntarily dies so that the sheep do not have to die. This is quite interesting if you think about it. Shepherds uh, sometimes did encounter dangers, right? Wolves, bears. Um, we read in 1 Samuel, David fights off a, a bear to protect his sheep. Um, 
But while it would have been a rare thing for a shepherd to actually die in defending his flock, a shepherd would never voluntarily or intentionally die, right? Um, that wouldn't protect the flock. It would leave the flock further exposed. But that's not the case for Christ or his sheep. He is the good shepherd because he doesn't only risk his life for the sheep, as any good shepherd would. He voluntarily lays his life down because only through his death will his sheep live. In other words, Christ's death was substitutionary in nature. He laid his life down as a substitute for the sheep because the danger looming for the sheep was not just a bear or a wolf or a lion, but in John, it is the wrath of a holy God looming over sinners. Jesus says, I lay my life down in the place of the flock. But before he goes on, he, he gives us a contrast with himself to highlight his character. Um, remember back in verse 1, he con contrasted himself with thieves and robbers. This is the corrupt leadership of Israel. But now he contrasts himself with hired hands in verses 12 through 13. He tells us about the self-preservation of, of hirelings. Look at verse 12. It says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The hired hand was paid to take care of the sheep in the place of the shepherd. The sheep don't belong to him. He cared for them only in so far as it profited himself. But as soon as danger would arise and threaten his life and his well-being, he would rather the flock die instead of himself. So really, you could say that this is substitutionary language as well, right? He would rather the flock die in his place in order to preserve his own life. That's what a hireling does. And Christ could very easily have preserved his life by allowing you and me to perish. But he didn't. And the rest of the passage is going to go on to explain why. Why is it that he laid his life down as a substitute for you, for me, his sheep? And that brings us to the second portrait in verses 14 through 18. The portrait of the good shepherd committed to his sheep and his father. So in verse 14, Jesus repeats, I am the good shepherd. And in what follows, Jesus is going to declare two more times that he lays down his life for the sheep. But in these verses, he's going to explain that he does so, number one, because of his committed relationship to the sheep. Number two, because of his committed relationship to the, to the Father. So first we get, in verses 14 through 16, his intimate concern for the sheep. And he begins by declaring that his relationship with the sheep is modeled after his relationship with the Father. Look at verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my, no, my own know me. 
just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So there's a lot packed into this verse here. Jesus says he knows his own sheep. Now that means a lot more than cognitive knowledge. It means a lot more than he's knowledgeable of his sheep. You know this if you've read the scripture, um, the Gospel of John. Knowing means what? What do you think? How would you describe knowing? Okay, there's an experiential element to it. Okay. Intimacy. That's right. That's right. Yep. So, for instance, John 17, 3, this is eternal life that you should know the eternal God in Jesus Christ who he sent. It's not just know about him. Obviously, there's information that's a part of it. The idea of, of, of knowledge is an intimate relationship with somebody. When Jesus says, I know my own, he's saying that he possesses a relationship of deep concern and awareness, affection, and commitment to his sheep. Now, if you were with us last week, who are these sheep? Do you remember? Who are these sheep that he is speaking about, that he knows? That's the Father gave them. They're the ones the Father gave him. Look over in, in verse 29 of chapter 10. We go to a number of places in the Gospel of John. We'll go here. Chapter 10, verse 29, he says, My Father who has given them to me. The sheep are those the Father has given to the Son for him to redeem. To use uh, theological terms, they are the elect. They are those the Father has given to the Son for the Son to redeem. And Jesus says, I know. I have an intimate concern awareness, affection, commitment to these particular sheep. That leads to the second thing I want to highlight here. He says, I know my own. It's actually really significant um, that he calls his flock his own. Um, last week we were in Ezekiel uh, 34 through 37 see a number of uh, overlaps with this passage, and we're going to be looking there again. Um, in those chapters, God promised that he would raise up David, the Messiah, to shepherd God's flock as God's divine representative. But nowhere is the flock ever said to belong to David, the Messiah. In fact, in the whole Old Testament, the Davidic king never is said to have the flock. He is an under-shepherd of Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who possesses the flock. So listen in, in Ezekiel here, 34, how Yahweh God speaks about the flock. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Let's hope God speaks of his flock. Yahweh will do what, personally, what all the leaders of Israel failed to do. 
But now we come to John and we hear Jesus declare, I know my own. In the same way that Yahweh God spoke in Ezekiel 34. In other words, I think what Jesus is doing is he's bringing together both the Davidic king that's promised in Ezekiel and Yahweh God to whom the flock belongs into one person. What was not revealed through Ezekiel is now revealed through Christ that Yahweh will shepherd his flock by becoming a man. Jesus Christ, the ultimate David and Messiah. So in other words, I think this is another way Jesus is highlighting his deity. He's come not to just be an under-shepherd of Yahweh, but as Yahweh to shepherd his own flock. Look back at verse 14 in our, in our passage here. He says, I know my own. Look at the second half. My own know me. My own know me. The sheep, which are Christ, by virtue of the Father's gift to the Son, are not only intimately known and loved and committed to by the Son, but they also respond to the Son with similar affection. That's how you know who are Christ's sheep. They respond with similar intimacy towards Christ. Affectionate devotion and love. The sheep know Christ. So as his sheep, you are not only particularly known by Christ, but you know him intimately and affectionately. So is that how you view your relationship with Christ? That he particularly, intimately knows you, is familiar with you? And you, would you characterize that as your relationship with him? You know him in that way? Do you have an intimate affection and commitment to Christ following him as a sheep with a shepherd? That's what sheep do. And if that were not enough, he goes on now in verse 15 to unpack this concept even further by comparing his relationship with the flock to his relationship with God the Father. Look at verse 15. He says, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Jesus is saying that this relationship with the sheep is grounded on his eternal an infinitely intense relationship with the Father. So you could say it like this. Just as the Father knows the Son, so the Son knows his sheep. That is amazing. Look over at John 15. That says something almost identical to this. John chapter 15, verse 9. The Father knows his Son eternally, affectionately, perfectly. In that way, the Son knows his own. Look at John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father has known me, as the Father has loved Christ, so Christ has loved his own. In other words, I think he's saying that his affection for his sheep is just as unbreakable as the Father's affection for the Son. 
His commitment to the sheep will be broken only when the Father's commitment to the Son is broken. That is how certain the salvation and the love and devotion of Christ to you, his flock, is. It's just as strong as is the bonds of the Trinity. Do you realize that? He is that devoted to his sheep. He loves you, believer. <clears throat> so do you know him like that? He does not just possess a, a general love for the world, merely general love for, for you. He loves you, believer, particularly, with a love and affection that is characteristic of the triune God. The same strength that the Father has for the, the Son. Why? Nothing in you, nothing in me, but based on pure sovereign grace. And if that was not enough, look at how the second half of verse 15 goes, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Because he's known you in this way, you respond with knowing him. So you can say it like this, my sheep know me just as I know the Father. And that is the goal of the Christian life, that you would have a knowledge and affectionate devotion for Christ which matches Christ's knowledge and affectionate devotion for the Father. So how are you doing? <laughs> um, I don't think any of us in here would say that we are anywhere near that, but if you're a believer you have at least a seed of that in your heart. A similar kind of affectionate devotion for Christ like he has towards his Father. And that's the goal of the Christian life, that you would grow in knowing him in this way. And the way you grow in knowing him in this way is by doing what we're doing this morning. Learning about how he knows you. And that brings us now to the end of, of verse 15. Because Christ knows his flock in this way, he knows them particularly, he knows them affectionately, his sacrifice for his sheep is particular in its scope. Look at verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He dies for his sheep, for those who have been given to him by the Father, for those whom he knows particularly. In other words, Christ did not accomplish a general redemption merely for every person in the same way. This verse, more clearly than I think anywhere in the Bible, tells us that Christ came and he knew his flock and he died for his flock. He didn't simply open up the possibility of redemption. His death did not merely aim at creating the potential for salvation for every single individual. No, he died as a substitute sacrifice for his particular flock for you. Because he knows you. Because you were given to him by the Father. This is the doctrine that's often called limited or probably better definite atonement. 
And uh, we don't have time to discuss this doctrine and all of its nuances and uh, wrestle with all of its implications. But all I want to do here is note what our text says. Look what he says. I lay down my life for in the place of my sheep. Just as knowledge of the sheep was particular, so his sacrifice for the sheep is particular. Just as his sheep belong to him by virtue of election before their faith, so also his death for the sheep preceded their faith in him. In fact, his death was the very cause of their faith in him. He died to secure the redemption of the sheep, which includes all the realities of the new covenant, the new heart, forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, and even faith itself. Put it this way. His death is effectual in saving his flock. His death actually accomplishes something. Not only by atoning for your sin, but also being the means whereby he gathers his flock to himself. Go over to chapter 12 of John. John 12, 32. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. The context there is all kinds of persons, Greeks as well as Jews. They will be drawn to him through his death. And that leads us perfectly to the next point. His gathering of his sheep extends to the nations. Look at verse 16, chapter 10. He says, And I have other sheep that are not from this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now this verse is absolutely packed. Uh, so we're just going to go line by line through. He says, I have other sheep which are not from this fold. So do you remember last week, what, what did we say the fold is in verse 1? He says, as the true shepherd, he's come to the sheep to the sheepfold. Um, what did that represent? Do you remember? The Jews. Sorry? The, the Jews. Yes, so we said it, it represented Judaism, or Old Covenant Israel, or the, the Jews. Yes. And here Jesus says, um, I have sheep that are not from this Jewish fold. Up to this point, Jesus has been speaking of his work as Messiah, come to call out his sheep from the folds of Judaism. He's a Jewish Messiah. He's come to bring them out to be his special people, to bring them into all of God's promises. But now Jesus says that he has sheep which are not from this Jewish fold, but rather from the nations. So just think about how provocative that would have been for the Jews who are listening to Jesus right now, who are not believing him, who are rejecting him. Jesus tells them that they are not part of the flock of Messiah, that they are not going to inherit the promises that some Gentiles, pork-eating Gentiles are. It's quite offensive. 
He's come as Messiah to fulfill God's new covenant promises, not for every single Jew, but for true Jews, believing Jews. And he's come in order to call out Gentiles from another fold to be part of his messianic flock, to inherit the promises alongside of believing Israel. He also says, I have other sheep. I have other sheep. And if it wasn't clear before, then it is crystal clear now that Christ's possession of the sheep precedes their faith in him, right? The Gentile mission at this point has not begun. They are not believing in him yet. And he says, I have other sheep. And then look what he says, and they will hear my voice. Their faith is future. And yet they're mine. And he says, I must bring these also. So just note the absolute certainty of the mission of Christ. He says, I must bring them, I must bring the flock, the Gentiles, into my fold. In John, this word must, or it is necessary, refers to a divine necessity, something ordained by God which must, which must take place. Flip over to chapter 11. Verse 51. Such a significant verse here. Parallels what he says in chapter 10, verse 16. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation of Israel. Verse 52, And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And that's how the verse ends in verse 16. To gather into one. That is his goal of his mission. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Through his cross work, he gathers them into one. And uh, if we have time, uh, I'm going to skip this section in Ezekiel 34, 37. Um, how Jesus expands the promises that he's going to reunite Israel. Judah and, Je- and, uh, Judah and Israel be reunited under the Messiah. <clears throat> Christ expands it to believing Gentiles. So all I'll say here is, as a Gentile believer, know the double grace that has been shown to you. Christ came to show grace to the Jews. We don't even belong to this olive tree, as Paul would say. We're a wild olive branch grafted in. There's mercy on top of mercy that you'd be brought in through Messiah to inherit all the promises alongside of Israel. And if that were not enough, Jesus goes on in verses 17 through 18 now to declare that his sacrifice is rooted in his affectionate obedience to the Father. So at first it was rooted in his concern and intimate knowledge of his sheep. Now it's rooted in his affectionate obedience to the Father. Look at verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, this charge I've received from my Father. Let me go through this really quickly. He tells us first that his substitutionary death on the cross was with the goal of the resurrection. He says, I lay my life down so that I should take it again. Only this kind of death would give life as if it ended in his resurrection. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said his death was with the resurrection in view. He died in order to rise, and by his rising to proceed toward ultimate glorification and the pouring out of the Spirit so that others too might live. He died so that he would rise. Next, Christ tells us that the voluntary aspect of his death was vitally important. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down my own accord. They remember the verses in Isaiah that talk about the Messiah, the suffering servant, pouring out his soul to death. He died willingly for the people. Next, this was all done in obedience to the Father's command. Look how the verse ends, verse 18. It says, this is the command I received from my Father. So not only did Christ come to save the persons that were given to him by the Father, he came to do it in the way the Father commanded him to do it, by the cross and by the resurrection. And he did it joyfully, willingly. It was the overflow of his great love for the Father and for the world. So... We're running out of, out of time. We've got so much we could say here, but let's go to the, the next point. It was because of the Son's perfect loving obedience to the Father's will that the Father therefore loves the Son. Look how verse begins. Verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me. The Father loves the Son eternally. The Son perfectly images the Father, and yet Jesus says here that it's because of his obedience that the Father loves him. Look back to chapter 15, verse 10. Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. It was in the cross that the Son of God displayed his absolute love for the Father, and it will go even to this extent. And it was in the cross that the Father responded to the Son with love, affectionate, and delight. And now we have the whole picture. This is what I want you to leave with. The good news of the gospel, which comes to poor, rebellious sinners like you and me, the world, comes out of the overflow of the eternal, steadfast love within the Godhead, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. God so loved the world because he so loved his Son. And he ordained to give the Son a people for whom he should die so that for all eternity his glory would be put on display. And the Son so loved the world because he so loved the Father and came in perfect submission to the Father's will, even to the point of death on a brutal cross. And it was out of the overflow of 
the love within the triune God that our salvation comes to us. That is the portrait of the, the good shepherd. He lays his life down for his sheep, and he does so because he knows you intimately, affectionately, and because he's on a mission, a complete devotion to the Father. For this reason, the Father loves him. Any questions, any comments? I have three closing implications for you as you walk away. I want to hear from you first. Any thoughts? Yes, Bobby. I had a question on that last part. I was looking at uh, 17.24, where Christ says, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Um, we kind of hit on it a little bit, but how do you reconcile that with the wording, the specific wording of for this reason yeah. in the text here? Because yeah. uh, they seem like they contrast. Obviously, we know they don't. Yeah. How would you explain like that eternal Yeah love versus the seems like um, uh, situational love. Yep, it's good. Yeah, I would say the Father is eternally loved the Son because the Son is eternally imaged forth the Father's character to Him. He's eternally been in perfect harmony, relationship with Him. Um, and that was put on the greatest display in the event of the cross, right? Um, so flowing from His character of eternal um, love and devotion to His Father, He accomplishes Incredible redemption, the Father's plan. In response to that, the Father loves him. It's a good question. Thoughts, questions, comments? All right, we're out of time. Um, so let me just call you. Um, see your salvation in light of what God is accomplishing in the world. See your life in light. He's on mission. Christ is on mission to gather for himself a people. Yes, it's for the forgiveness of your sin, to give you heaven. We're a small piece in his plan to gather a people for himself from all nations for his glory. It's meant to call you to communion with the eternal God. Do you commune with him in this way? Do you fellowship with him, knowing his love for you? And finally, um, it's meant to call you to image his self-sacrificing character. So just ask yourself this week, are you more like a hireling be more like the good shepherd. Grow in his love, abide in his love, and image his love to those around him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Great love, affection for us. Thank you for the salvation you've completely accomplished for us, Lord. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. I ask that you build them up in Christ. Teach us, Lord, in the service to come. Jesus' name we pray.